0: Well, thanks again for being here at Grace. We're glad you're with us, and a special uh, welcome to Paulding, who's joining us this service. And and we're just glad you're here. We're in a series, as you know, The Struggle is Real. And today, we're, we're talking about marriage. We've, we've gone over several things, uh, parenting. We've gone over uh, the addictive nature of sin. And, and uh, by the way, had a great, great service last, last Sunday as... Uh, Zach was mentioning at the welcome, uh, almost 2,000 people in attendance. We had 36 people respond to the invitation. We're just really excited about how God has used our Beast Feast weekend to, to make some of those things happen. And today we're talking about marriage. And uh, marriage is a, it's a whole... Uh, it, it can, how many of you have noticed that marriage can be hard? And don't raise your hands. God. You know, guys, I, I don't want to trap you. I know what guys are thinking, you know. Well, if I raise my hand on the way home, my wife's going to turn to me, so what's so hard about our marriage? You know, or if you don't raise your hand, it'll be like, man, this guy does not realize all the struggle and work I put in to this relationship. You know, it's kind of one of those maybe you can't win things. So, boy, didn't quite warn you quick enough on that one. But uh, we're going to dive right in. Uh, Basically, just to answer three quick questions, why, why do we have struggles in marriage? What, what's, what does God say about that? What's God's answer for that, and how do we start? So why do we, have, why do we have struggles in marriage? Well, a lot of it is just, it's the baggage that we tend to bring into marriage without even realizing it. We... Uh, Actually, it's our, it's our hopes, dreams, and desires. We've, we've talked about this a lot before, never had props before, so we'll see how this goes, but uh, that means when we think about marriage in the future, we think about our hopes, our dreams, our desires, and how it's going to be, and, and we sort of, we have it all mapped out in our mind, and so, you know, the first thing may come up is just money, you know, how much money you're going to make, or I'm going to have a job, and she can stay home, or she's going to make money, and I'm going to stay home, and we're going to have a budget, or we're definitely not going to have a budget, because that feels like an allowance, you know, however you do. But, but you have kind of the money, your take on money, how that's going to be, so that goes in your hopes, dreams, and desires. And, and then someday you'll want a house, right, and, or an apartment, or a this, or that, or a real fixer-upper Victorian type of a house, or a house that's all set to go in our apartment that's all completely done, and you don't need any of that stuff. And then, of course, after that is the, we, we need a, a sensible yet sporty car where or, or maybe somebody's saying, well, we need a Harley. That, that's what we need. And, and so you have that going there. And then there's the household chores, right? And so who does that? And well, that'll probably happen like the way my parents divided labor. That's the way we'll divide labor. And, and so you kind of have all that figured out. And then there's how you spend time. We, we have a lot of time that we're, we're always together or we have time that we have a part, you know, every week that that kind of happens and, and here's how we do our vacations and here's who's family. We're at our vacations. Like when I married Pam, I told her basically, you know, there's only, only three holidays that we'll do with my family. That's Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Fourth of July and then all the rest your family can have, you know, St. Patrick's Day and, you know, all those things. You know, so, so you have the time deal, how you're dividing all that up. And, and then inevitably comes the pets, right? You know, hey, I'm a dog guy, so, you know, we, I can't decide whether I want a Staffordshire Terrier or a Pitbull, you know, which one there. And, and then, no, I'm a cat person, warm and, and fluffy. And, and then, no doubt, the, the kids comes, and so you have a baby, because now you have confidence, because your, your pets haven't died, so you have a child, and, you know, a, a son or a daughter, and then you have another son or a daughter, and then you have another son <laughs> and a daughter. And then you're, you're trying to figure all that out. And, and then, well, we better try for that opposite sex child that we, that we haven't had yet, and that doesn't exactly happen either, and, and so all that. And then there's conflict resolution. You know, how, how, how do you resolve the inevitable conflicts? Well, we're going to do that like my parents. We're going to do that exactly how my parents didn't do that. And, and we're going to just kind of air it out and just let it fly like, like, uh, like some families do, and no, we'll never raise our voice because just, just raising of your voice, that, that is major disrespectful. And, and so people have that, all those different things that they bring into a marriage, but the problem is, and, and where do they come from? Usually the way you grew up, um, either something that you want to bring forward that you saw your parents model something that you want to kind of copy and and bring that in or it's something because the way you grew up that you don't want to bring in you saw that and you want to avoid that at all costs it's never going to be that way kind of a deal but the problem is is we tend to before marriage we, we fill this up our dreams our, our desires our hopes And then we get married and we just do this. Okay, here you go. Now you make all this happen for me. And when you do that, it does not feel like hopes, dreams, and desires to the person you're you're marrying. To the person you're marrying, it feels like expectations. And think about it. When, when these hopes, dreams, and desires become expectations, then no matter what your spouse does, it's really never quite good enough. Because if they, if they happen to meet your expectations in some area of your marriage, well then that's just expected, right? There, there's no big high five for that. That's what you expect of them. And when they don't meet those expectations, then you're disappointed. There's this gap of what you thought it would be like and and how reality sets in. And then all of a sudden, that starts leading to conflict. Because one person feels like, even when I meet your expectations, they're not really appreciated. And then there's all these other areas I'm I'm not quite measuring up. And then all of a sudden, there's kind of a a tug-of-war that develops, you know, from this stuff. And, uh, and you're just pulling against each other. And then it's who can get most of their expectations met and who doesn't and who wins and who loses. And then when the conflicts and fights get big enough, then finally somebody threatens divorce, and and they're basically saying, hey, I'm going to pick up my hopes, dreams, and desires, and I'm going to carry these into some other relationship because they're not being met here. And that just, I think that's where a lot of the conflict in marriage originates. It's it's having expectations that are actually unrealistic because they're not if they're not shared by your partner and they rarely are exactly the same way and so that causes issues a kind of a slow grind in the relationship where one person tends to feel um, forgotten taken for granted. You know, I do all this stuff, it's never enough. And then and maybe another person checks out of the relationship, kind of just puts it on autopilot, does the minimum just to get by. And all of a sudden you find yourself coexisting rather than joyfully sharing in your family, in your, in your marriage. But I got to tell you, sometimes... It's not just this little tug of war that can naturally happen in a relationship because we all tend to do this. Sometimes you can think your marriage is going great and, uh, and, and you think things are good and maybe because you're taking the other person for granted or maybe that you're just not dialed in or maybe you're flying on autopilot or, or whatever or, or maybe you're just not careful enough. And all of a sudden, you know, a crisis can happen in your relationship that just, that shakes your world. Something that happened happened that, that you thought you would never do or that you, you, your spouse would never do, it. and all of a sudden there's this crisis that threatens to destroy you and your marriage. And that happens. It happens a lot. We, we need to be on our guard even when you find yourself in a situation you never thought you'd find yourself in, there's still hope, there's still a way forward, God's way. I know how long you've been around grace, but if you've been around grace any amount of time, you'll you'll realize that there's many of our core members have been through experiences just like this, and have found forgiveness and reconciliation through Christ. Right after, right before Jesus was was crucified, He was talking with His disciples, and He said something that ties into something that, that Rachel said. Rachel was quoting out of Ephesians 5 and said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And it was in the, that last night when Jesus was betrayed that He talked to the disciples and John 13 describes it this way. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another… Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Sometimes Jesus said something else that we call the golden rule that basically says, hey, treat other people the way you would want to be treated. And if that's the golden rule, then this must be the platinum rule. Because here Jesus is saying, love other people Not the way you want to be loved, just that. Love other people the way that I have loved you. And that's the standard for those of us who are believers. That we would love other people in the same way that God has loved us. And of course, a short time after he said that, Jesus allowed Himself to be taken to Calvary, or He was crucified, in order to offer us forgiveness. Allowed Himself to be killed in order to forgive us of our sins. We know a lot of people, you know, most of us, experience some level of struggles within our marriage. And what's the answer? Well, really, the way to move forward is, is just what Rachel was saying, turn to God. I, I appreciate her being willing to tell her story. Like I say, we have a lot of core members that have been through stuff like that. But you have to have a lot of passion to want to help other people sometimes to, to tell your story in such a public way. So what's the answer? Well, actually, God's given us a pattern for marriage that, that we, we always want to mention when we're talking about the marriage relationship because that's what God keeps mentioning to us. And uh, and that's in Ephesians 5, what Rachel was referring to, and it really reveals to us God's pattern for a thriving marriage. And the text is so familiar to a lot of us Christians that I think sometimes we can tend to forget the context of not only how it's written, but also the impact that would have had on the first hearer's of this, when this letter was, was read to the, the church in Ephesus. And normally we start with the instruction to the wives, verse 22, but I want to back up and start with verse 21, and the, because there's a shared verb there. But in verse 21 it says this, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So the first pattern that he's given us is that basically in human relationships as believers that we would be subject to one another, that we would want to serve each other in the way that, that God has for us. And then after he says this, he starts specifically mentioning different groups of people in the church, sort of calling them out and saying this is, in essence, how you do this. But we're reminded, no matter what God is telling us to do in our pattern or our role, that it's all to be done, really, in service to the other person. And so that's our our mutual responsibility, is that we would be subject to one another, and then he breaks it down how that looks. And he starts... For example, with wives, in verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as Christ is subject, I'm sorry, as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And so, the, uh, obviously, in the first century, this is not controversial, right? The first, be subject to one another, that was very controversial in the first century. This part, not so controversial. Greek uh, and Roman customs were uh, right in line with this. No big surprise, no big controversy. They, they would not have seen this this section is revolutionary, although it started out that way. It's controversial here because of a couple things. Number one, when we hear somebody is to be subject to somebody else or to submit to somebody else, we tend to think that implies inferiority. But right here in the text, it's making it very clear that it does not mean inferiority because he's tying this all into Christ and the church, and, and Christ subjected Himself, submitted Himself to the Father, although they're equals. And so, we tend to see this a different way, because way, to us, because we imply inferiority, it's controversial, because we think, you know, everybody's equal, everybody's of equal value, and that's exactly right. And by the way, where did we get that? We actually got that from Jesus. We actually got that from the New Testament. That, that's where, in history, all of a sudden, women were elevated above just being owned by men. Christianity did that. No other system in the world brought that into our world. That's a Christian concept. But here, wives are called to, to model Jesus, in how you submit doesn't mean your husband should have total dominance or rule over you harshly. It doesn't mean that you put yourself in physical harm. If if there's something going on like that, you need counseling. You need need to deal with that specifically and get help. And, And by the way, men, this was written to the wives, so we don't use it. You know, that's for them, so we don't beat our wives up with that. We don't use it against them. I want to remind wives of something. It's not submit if he's a strong enough spiritual leader. It's not submit if he wants you to do what you want him to want you to do. It's not submit if he's a Christian husband. It's submit to your husband's leadership. Submission creates a vacuum that can help encourage him into that type of leadership, even if he's not wired up that way. I think a lot of times guys, uh, they're born into the world with this, with this question. A lot of guys, kind of in general, you know, do I have what it takes? And they spend a lot of their lives kind of proving or ending up disproving that they have what it takes. And, and a lot of times, if they have good dads, they sort of… Uh, They grow up and they feel good about that, and they they tend to feel like I do have what it takes. I'm up to the challenge. I can make this happen. But some guys had lousy dads and they didn't come up that way. And that question still lingers in their mind, and then they get married to you. And I'm telling you, you can encourage him into that role by appreciating his leadership, by yielding to his leadership, by once in a while encouraging him, however you would do that in your particular relationship, like, hey, that's my man. And watch him grow into that role. It's an invitation. Make an invitation for him to to engage in the family. Encourage him. And I'm always kind of curious about the wife's perspective, because it's always, you know, when I'm preaching, obviously I'm a husband, not a wife. So I wanted to share some. This is uh, Tim and Kathy Keller wrote this book, Meaning of Marriage. I, I got to meet Tim once. He actually gave me a signed copy of this book. But here's a section that Kathy's writing his wife, and here's what she says. And they're talking about this issue. What does that look like in real day life when you have a disagreement? So she says… But what of a case where both parties cannot agree, but some kind of decision must be made? Someone must have the right to cast the deciding vote and thus take the greater responsibility for the decision. This should be the place where the one the Bible calls head takes responsibility. When it happens, both people submit to their role. And then she tells a story in the late... 1980s, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. And then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. He was excited by the idea. I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought that the project would be successful. She says, I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would do as a nine-to-five job. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of his time. And it was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call, but I had serious doubts whether it was the right choice. And I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. However, I replied, oh, no, you don't. You aren't putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break this logjam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support you. Isn't that great from a woman's perspective? I'm not saying it's easy, but that's how it's done. And by the way, don't reject this biblical pattern because you've seen it abused or done wrongly in somebody else. And of course, the instructions aren't limited to wives. The next section is about husbands, right? Verse 25, husbands... He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." So husbands, all we're called to do is simply love our wives, just like John was telling us, John 13. like. Christ loved the church, or maybe more personally, like Jesus loves you, like that. I know when uh, I performed my son Zach's marriage to Caitlin, you know, I challenged him to initiate as a leader, initiate, pursue, protect, provide, and to lead. Caitlin and their marriage, and to do that with the wisdom, gentleness, and strength that God requires of us who lead. Initiate. In marriage, that means initiate your relationship. Lead in forgiveness, love, reconciliation. Don't drift. Lead in making sure that your marriage is what it should be. Pursue. That's take the lead in romance. After you've pursued her and won her, don't stop pursuing. Take the lead in romance. Guys, that means, hey, take the lead on date night. Figure that out. Schedule it. Budget it. Make it happen. Date night. Take the lead on that. Well, wow, I really was expecting a little more, uh, little more female amens on that one. Yeah. Initiate. Pursue provide work provide a living take care of her protect you know a lot of times we guys man I would die for my I'd die for anybody in my family I would protect her I would put my life on the line well if that's true then live with her by putting her needs ahead of your own protect her in that way Lead. Lead in sacrifice. Lead the way spiritually. But Kevin, you don't understand. She knows more about the Bible than I do. That's okay. Lead in how the Bible is applied in your family. Lead in discipline. Especially when it's children disrespecting their mother. Lead in that. Take the lead. That's your responsibility. Don't Don't just come home, even though you're tired, I get it, and put it on autopilot and drift. You can't afford to. Your family's too important. You know, guys, some of you, if you put the same initiative and work into your job that you did in your marriage, you'd be fired. You've got to put the effort. The stakes are too high. A few weeks ago, when we were talking about parenting, I I mentioned this statistic that in a family where nobody's a Christian, if a child becomes a Christian first in the family, there's a 3.5% chance the rest of the family becomes a believer. And if it's the mom that first becomes a Christian, there's a 17% chance the rest of the family becomes a believer's. But if a dad is the first one to become a believer, there's a 93% chance that the rest of the family becomes believers. Dads, you have to lead spiritually. I came from a family where my mom was the first one to become a believer. But we have a huge influence, a bigger influence than we think on our families when it comes to their relationship with God. And the fact is, we talk about our home being our castle, and, and men, we, we wear a crown at home, a crown of thorns where we serve the people around us and we sacrifice for them. You want to love your wife like Jesus loves you? It starts with forgiving her, forgiving her whatever you're holding against her. And so the last question is how do we start? Well, the first thing is we we stop tugging with this. We keep quit placing our hopes, dreams and desires onto our spouse, which turns into expectations that we, we let go of that. And how do we start, if you're a Christian, you go first, because that's what Jesus did for you. Actually Christian marriage, it's like a, a submission competition. We should live our marriages like we have no expectations of the other person, but we want to fulfill all their hopes and dreams and desires but we're not expecting anything back. Sometimes it's just how we, we talk about our spouses. How, how, do, how do you start? Well, you should never speak negatively about your spouse to your parents, the rest of your family, to your kids, to your friends, to anybody. You should never do that. Husbands, lead in a way that puts your needs ahead of your own. Wives, show him respect by yielding to his leadership. Paul wraps this section up to spouses this way in verse 32 and 33. He says, "'This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church.'" He ties it all back, just like John did, just like Rachel mentioned. He's tying it all back to love like Jesus loves us. And then in the next verse, 33, he says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. How do we start by loving that person like Jesus loves us. And if we're Christian, we go first. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for loving us and sharing with us, Lord, Your pattern for marriage. And it's It's amazing how messy marriage gets and uh, how deeply we can be hurt. And Father, yet you have a a way forward, um, a way that provides hope. And God, we thank you for that. And God, I pray that you would help us to do what you've called us to do to submit to one another. Lord, and and for husbands, that means that in the way we lead our families or that we do it for our family's benefit, the way we lead our wife is that we lead with servant leadership. We lead with our wife's best interests in mind. And God, we pray that you'd help us to go first with love and forgiveness like Jesus has shown us. And then that would be the key to start unraveling uh, the resentment, the hard feelings, the mess, the entanglements that some of our marriages have drifted into. And Father, we pray that You would through Your Spirit, just impact our hearts on this because we can all make adjustments that will make our marriage better simply by loving like You love us. God, help us to do that, all of us who are married, and those who aren't married yet, that they would be thinking that way before they enter into marriage. God, thanks for loving us. Thanks for showing us how to love through your Son. In Christ's name, amen.